Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Nonprofit Service Delivery. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Sophia Tilton is the owner of Words of Wisdom. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. She is a member of ASHA and a member of Neurogenic Communication Disorders and Swallowing Disorders Special Interest Groups. She is a member of the Texas Speech-Language Hearing Association and the Houston Association for Communication Disorders. Sophia is a board member of RSVP. And now we welcome our guest today, Sophia Tilton, a bilingual speech-language pathologist and owner of Words of Wisdom, a speech therapy clinic with multiple locations in Houston, Texas. Sophia began her career at the Institute for Rehabilitation and Research Memorial Hermann Inpatient Rehabilitation Hospital, working as a speech-language pathologist for the Brain Injury and Stroke Program. Her clinical experience includes acute and inpatient rehabilitation in the Memorial Hospital System, Mentis Neurorehabilitation, Houston Aphasia Recovery Center, and Home Health Services, as well as working with school-aged children in the Houston Independent School District. Sophia serves on the Board of Directors of RSVP, a nonprofit organization providing therapy and durable medical equipment to underinsured individuals with brain injury, spinal cord injury, and amputations. Sophia, we are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to talk about nonprofit service delivery. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for having me. I'm so excited. So my interest in volunteering for a nonprofit that was dedicated to providing free rehabilitation services to individuals with brain injury started about 17 years ago. So a few months before I started graduate school at TCU, my younger sister Yesenia had a tragic car accident, and this was right around spring break. So this was a time when we were getting our acceptance letters for grad school and literally found out that she had suffered a car accident. So 
we went over to see her. And I remember one of the first nurses that I saw, he said, Hey, your mom said that you're going to be a speech language pathologist. You're going to go to grad school. Well, that's great. Cause your sister's going to need a lot of speech therapy. And I was like, huh, what, what do you mean? I had no idea as an undergrad, how just what brain injury really, really was did not grasp that concept because I had zero experience. So when she suffered her traumatic brain injury, she was given the locked in syndrome. So she did, she required, you know, she was nonverbal. She required a communication device. She was NPO. She went through a lot of dysphagia therapy. She required, I mean, everything that you could think of in for adult speech therapy in the hospital setting for neuro patients, my sister went through it and I saw it as firsthand. In addition to, which kind of goes through with what I'm going to talk about with some of the nonprofit work that I do, she required a lot of medical equipment. And so we got to see her navigate through all that, getting the right appropriate and safe equipment. So I decided when I started graduate school to really look into working with adults. And so when I was, my sister was still receiving intense therapy at home, including speech therapy. I then started working at TIER and I was fortunate to start working in this brain injury and patient rehab hospital back in 2010. When I was there, I was approached by Dr. Sunil Katari. He's a PM&R physician. He's so that's physical medicine and rehabilitation. And he asked me if I wanted to volunteer on a Saturday morning at a local nonprofit called Casa Juan Diego. So this was a small Catholic-based charity that provided a medical clinic. So they were there usually on the weekends, usually um, volunteer physicians and nurses. And they had a lot of individuals that were coming in that had either stroke or brain injury, and they just didn't, they weren't able to provide the therapies and services for them through their organization. So a small group of us went, it was myself, I was a speech therapist, a nurse, Dr. Katari, a PT and an OT. And we saw probably about seven patients there. And it was an eye opener. You know, when you're in your clinical setting in this perfect hospital, having all the resources and then seeing patients that have nothing. I mean, I will never forget this gentleman that this family was so thankful that they were finally going to see a therapist. They put him in the back of a pickup truck laying on a mattress, bringing him from outside of Houston just to come in and see us. So it was just, you know, an eye opener for us. So our little tiny volunteer group eventually turned into this official nonprofit organization. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing those stories. And thank you for telling us about your sister's journey. How is your sister doing now? She's doing good. And, you know, when you suffer a severe brain injury, whether it's mild or severe, I mean, it's life changing. So she is still using medical equipment. She's still in a wheelchair, but she's learned to be a lot more independent. So she is able to use her chair on her own. She's able to get around. Um, We've learned a lot about how to access the environment, how to work on being independent, which I'm sure any of our listeners that work with brain injury, that's always a goal, how to be more independent. So she still receives PT. She still receives physical therapy, sometimes OT, and she's actually one of our clients here at Words of Wisdom. So she gets teletherapy with our speech language pathologist here. Oh, that's great. It's exciting that she continues to make such progress. So I can imagine when you saw the person in that pickup truck that day after having been through the experience that you have been through, 
how you felt because that really hit home yeah. someone not having any resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was. So hard experiences, but that led you to do a lot of good for a lot of people. And I'm really super excited to dig into this. So you have been with RSVP from the very beginning. And can you describe to us how RSVP was founded? So during that Saturday, some of the Saturday morning clinics that we were doing at Casa Juan Diego, we were just meeting so many individuals that were describing how they were abruptly discharged from the hospital as soon as they were medically stable. So even though they're medically stable, they still required a lot more care and treatment. So as a family member, I completely understood how hard it was to navigate everything once you're discharged. You know, I remember thinking, that when they started discharge planning with my sister and talking to my parents. And I was like, wait, why is she being discharged if she can't walk yet? And why is she being discharged if she can't talk yet? You just, you don't understand that when you're first going through it and you've never met anybody that has a brain injury. And so when we were there, we started getting referrals. People were starting to refer us patients that were not through Casa Juan Diego. So we started going to people. We started making some home visits. And even one time we went to a homeless shelter. So at the homeless shelter, I remember seeing this gentleman there with severe aphasia because of a stroke. And his case manager was trying to contact his family. So apparently he had some family nearby but he wasn't able to communicate because of his aphasia. So I did a quick assessment and I found out that he, although he was nonverbal, he was still able to comprehend some and was able to read a little bit and answer some written choices. So with the help of the case manager, we were able to ask the appropriate yes, no questions, use a map, and he was able to show us where his family lived and they were able to get in contact with him and, and do more investigating to help him out. So, so, you know, that was just some, an example of like, he had nothing. He wasn't able to, they just needed some, you know, the PM&R doctor was there to help out. And then as a speech therapist, we were able to provide a little bit of help. You know, and as mentioned, you work in this rehab hospital, you have all the resources you need. But when we were going to these houses, we were seeing just how, you know, this extreme poverty that was happening just minutes or miles away from from where I was working, which in Texas Medical Center, even though we're in a very big city. So a lot of these home visits that we were doing, it would be they would have a tiny one bedroom apartment, multiple family members. And they, you know, made it happen. So they would put the hospital bed in the middle of the living room. They would put all their medical supplies up against the wall. And, you know, we were just, we couldn't believe how they were making it work, you know. And so one of the, you know, this definitely motivated us to always remind us like why we do what we do. I'm not always seeing patients and know where they're coming from. And I know even with my sister, you know, they weren't living in a large home, you know, and they, and it was, you know, immediately taken over by all the medical equipment and all the therapy supplies that you need. So in our County, in I live in Harris County, we do have financial assistance program called the gold card. And this is where people can receive therapy and medical services on a sliding scale fee. But with Houston, we have such a large metropolitan area and it consists of nine counties. This gold card is only for Harris County. So then we were identifying that even though there are resources, especially being in a big city, there's still a lot of people that were not 
able to access the care. So that's one thing, you know, starting a nonprofit is we were starting to see this, this need or this population that needed something specialized. And while we were starting to figure out how to establish a nonprofit, we were then starting to reach out to other nonprofits to figure out what to do and making sure there wasn't another nonprofit providing the same type of work as us that were serving adults with brain injury and spinal cord injury, and we couldn't find it. So who were some of the other nonprofits that you collaborated with initially? So first, we actually were, we collaborated with another physician, another PMNR physician, but she also had her own private practice. So she had some space. It wasn't very big, but her name is Dr. Cindy Ivanhoe. This helped us kind of see more patients in a central location. And we then saw the need that not only do they need therapy, but They're also missing medical equipment, which goes hand in hand, especially with the physical therapy, OTs, and just being able to get, be mobile and be out of their home. So we then contacted this other nonprofit organization here that was called Project Union. And Project Union was made up um, mainly physician residents. And there were a few OTs and PTs as well that were serving on the board. And they had this clinic once a month and they would receive donated wheelchairs and they would give out donated wheelchairs. So it was, again, these residents were the ones that were mainly holding this clinic. So we started referring to them. They started referring people to us too. And also with the help of social workers in our hospitals, we were trying to find other nonprofits that, you know, when you need some of the peg tube feeding formula or you need trick supplies and catheters. And so we were able to find a lot of nonprofits that were able to help us in that. But again, we just couldn't find anybody else that was providing any specialized rehabilitation therapy and medical services for the people that we were trying to serve. So then we started, we then said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's make this decision and commit to starting a nonprofit instead of, because we didn't really have a name for ourselves. We were just, you know, the group from tier. So we decided to move on forward, move forward with that. Well, that's great. So then the first step was getting your tax exempt status. Is that right? Yeah. So yes, the first thing you do, and it can take a little bit over a year to to do that once you submit the application. So we started the application process in fall of 2011. We completed what's called the form 1023. And I checked it again because it's been a long time, but it's still the form that you need to complete from the IRS. So we fill that out and But before filling it out, there's a lot of things that you have to think about. So we started having these meetings with some of us, mainly that group that was volunteering that started off. And so we were thinking we had to agree on a name. So what were we going to call ourselves? So we decided on Rehabilitation Services Volunteer Project so that we could be called RSVP for short. For us, especially working with people with memory problems, we're like, we need something catchy, something that people can understand or can remember. That's a great name. (laughs) I know that it took us a while. I think I mentioned to you uh, just to find a name for our little podcast here. So I understand how important that can be. Okay. So you established a name and then you created a mission statement. We did. Yes. So we created our mission statement and I'm going to go ahead and read ours. So I think it's, it's important. You always have to look back at your mission statement. So ours says the vision of RSVP is a community in which people with disabilities lead lives of maximum independence, inclusion, and meaning 
Recognizing that rehabilitation can contribute to this outcome, our mission is to provide outpatient services to people who lack access to such care. We are a multidisciplinary, coordinated team of healthcare professionals committed to providing high quality rehabilitative care that is comprehensive, compassionate, and community oriented. I think it took us several meetings, several weeks to agree on this mission statement. And you know what? Now looking back, it's probably the most important thing that we did, especially in the very beginning. Because once you start growing as a nonprofit, and you will, you're going to experience growth, you're going to experience change and new ideas, you always go back to that mission statement and say, you know, is this what our purpose was? Is this what we wanted to do? And it always helped us, especially as a board, to make sure that we are following what we intended to do, what our mission statement says. Excellent. So the mission statement really serves as your your guiding light as you evolve. It does. Well, you did an excellent job. How many of you were in that room? Do you recall in those meetings? It was several meetings. So actually, I was pregnant at the time. So I remember going into these meetings after work, exhausted. You know, as if for those of you that are, you know, in your second, third trimester. So you know, it would be about it was less than ten people. So it was a small group of us. But enough that there would be a lot of opinions in creating that. I can understand why it took as long as it did. And it was worth all those meetings because it really is an excellent mission statement. Okay, so you you had your mission statement. And then what other steps did you take? So then we also had to designate the officers and directors, which included the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer. So because I was having, I was pregnant, had to go on actually had to go on bed rest. Sometimes I would be on phone calls during these meetings. Wow. So I'm not a founding board member, but I did join soon after once I came back. So, but during that time we were needing to adopt bylaws and provide a copy of the showing of the adoption. So of these bylaws and I can say definitely, especially when I later was president. So I, I definitely had to refer back to those bylaws a lot. And we do, we'll have to come back and look at them whenever we're making decisions as board members. So, but you have to, the IRS requires that all tax exempt businesses that we have to file these bylaws. So no matter what state you're in, you're going to have to file them to the IRS. Now, depending on which state you are, you have to find out if you have to then submit it to the state as well. So it just depends. Every state has their own regulatory agencies that choose if they're going to keep them and hold the records. So the bylaws have to include important policies. And this is where we did, I want to say we did hire an attorney. I don't think he charges a lot. We didn't know who he was. And he assisted us in creating our bylaws to include all of the IRS and the state requirements. So looking back at our old notes, there were things that we had to add in that the state of Texas required. So I recommend consulting with an attorney so that you make sure you receive all of the protections afforded to you as a nonprofit. Excellent advice. So the bylaws, how lengthy of a document are the bylaws? I'm sure it depends state to state, but like for yours. Mm -hmm. I think ours is, I mean, ours is at least 15, 20 pages. Okay. It's pretty long. It does. And it talks about how you are going to, like how you bring in board members, how you make a decision as a board, how you run your program, your organization. So you have to have, there's a lot that goes in. There's a lot of legal terms that we didn't understand. And that's where the attorney really can help. 
Excellent. Good advice. Okay. So you obtained your tax exempt status from the IRS. You established a name, you developed your mission statement, and you designated officers. Then you consulted an attorney to write your bylaws in adherence with the IRS and state requirements. And then what happens after that once you obtain your 5013C status? So you do need patience. So for us, it took us about 13 months after submitting it. So you're just kind of waiting for a while. That's kind of the hard part because you're ready to, you are you know, you have to wait a whole year or more. I mean, it just depends on your state, but we've kind of felt like there wasn't that much that we could do except prepare. And so, but once we did get it, I remember we were just so thrilled when we got the notice and that we were now able to receive donations. People were then able to give us financial donations, which is something that we also needed in order to grow. So we also then had to obtain a few insurance policies in order to protect our organization and board members. So one is the DNO liability insurance or directors and officers insurance. So this protects individuals from personal losses. So as a board member, I'm then protected with this. No one's going to sue me for something that's happening with the organization. No one's going to go after my assets. And so this helps cover the legal fees and any other costs that the organization may have if there's a lawsuit. And we also had to obtain a general liability insurance that covers any claims due to bodily injury or property damage that occurs while the nonprofit is operating. So for example, in our case, we were in providing services in a gym. And so we had to then show or give them the location that we were at so that we were protected or could protect our volunteers if anything were to happen when we were there. There is also in Texas, and you'd have to check with your state, but we have the Texas Charitable Immunity and Liability Act that protects volunteers from liability exposure in order to encourage volunteers that are serving through a nonprofit. So although we have these insurances, and even as we were in the process of getting them, we constantly were referring back to that. And when volunteers would ask us that, we would let them know that there is some protection that we have with the Texas Charitable Immunity and Liability Act. So definitely check out and see if your state has something like that, which I'm guessing there is. It doesn't completely shield us from liability or lawsuits, but it reduces our exposure. Okay. Excellent. Well, that is definitely good to know. So, and then you were able to start to get donations and recruit volunteers. So tell us a little bit about recruiting volunteers. So we decided from the start that we were going to be an all-volunteer organization except for hiring contractors. And even in the beginning, we tried to get people to donate and volunteer their time since we didn't have a whole lot of money. So for example, we found, you know, you always know a friend of a friend that knows how to do websites. And remember, this is 10 years ago. I think it's a lot easier to do a website now, by the way, than 10 years ago. So he created this website and we were so thankful. But, you know, then we realized like, okay, as we needed more content and we needed to use our website to reach to volunteers that we needed a professional to help us with that. So we quickly, or we soon after found somebody. And then we also found an accountant who was very enthusiastic to help us. We were very thankful, but he didn't have any experience with nonprofits. And so it ended up costing us a little bit more time than we needed and until we found a person that 
was that's all she did is, and she still works with us now. So it's just works with nonprofit. So I highly recommend when it's something like that, leave it to the professionals. And there are some things that you should be paying them, should be paid contractors. So we were able to recruit a lot of volunteers through work and through the clinics that we were already doing. So the word was spreading and we were then starting to kind of, instead of having, you know, just brain injury clinic, we did have a physician at that time that was specialized with spinal cord injury patients. So he would bring all of his therapists that he worked with and get them to come volunteer. Then we had Dr. Katari with brain injury. And then we have, and still do Dr. Melton with amputations. And so we kind of had these three mini clinics in our therapy clinics. And then, you know, we had, I was, you know, kind of in charge of speech, trying to get people to come in for speech therapy. And then we then moved from Dr. Ivanhoe's office and somebody, a company, which is Mentis at the time, donated their gym. So this was a huge step in, in progress for us. So now we have this amazing facility and I had my own speech room. Sometimes I could bring another speech therapist because we had the space. I was able to co-treat when I needed to. And the PTs and OTs now had all the equipment that they need. So you know, they now had a treadmill and they had, you know, weights and the bands and everything that they need. And if I needed swallowing, they already, they allowed us to use, you know, any thickener that they had. So if you think about it, you know, all of that costs so much money. We didn't have to pay anything for that space, for those materials that they let us borrow. And so this was a way for us to then start recruiting more people because we were now at this place, other place, and then we were able to continue to keep our cost extremely low. Well, that's great. Was that an outpatient clinic that they were allowing you to use on Saturdays? or was so It's that- a post-acute facility and we're still there to this day. It's now called NeuroRestorative and they don't use it on Saturdays. And that was why we were able to come in and use it on Saturday mornings. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I guess that goes goes by the way of, you know, if you build it, they will come. So, you know, you built this nonprofit and people came to you willing to volunteer. That's huge. And they have helped you for over 10 years now. They have. Yeah, they have. Even though the ownership changed, we continue to maintain a good relationship with them and they continue to donate their space and they even helped us with fundraising early on. So, and again, we were able to then recruit therapists from there too. So it was a win-win for everyone. Well, that's great. Okay. So you recruit the therapist and then, you know, you're just a Saturday clinic. So how do you not just, but you're not with them, these volunteers every day. So how do you train and orient them? So the clinic has been running the same almost since the very beginning. And it definitely helped that, you know, I would talk to any volunteer that was a speech therapist. We had a PT that did that in OT. So we we made sure that they were coming with experience at whatever, wherever they were working from. In the beginning, it was all of our friends and colleagues. So it was pretty easy, but then other people started learning about us. So the first 30 minutes, we provide orientation. We always have a clinical director that's kind of showing that's not treating so that that clinical director can help and assist as needed. We provide medical background information during those 30 minutes, paperwork, documentation. 
And then anything that needs to happen that we had already stated from the previous clinic, what things they need to follow up on or make sure they work on. And then we have, so this clinic is actually, we only have it every first and third Saturday. So we're, it's only twice a month and it's only in the morning from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we see four patients. So as a volunteer, you see four patients, 45 minute sessions. You do your documentation during those 15 minutes. Back then we only had paper and pen. And then we now have laptops and iPads that they're able to use if they want to. We have everything printed, all the resources. We focus a lot on the home education program and training since we're only seeing them twice a month at the most. And the last 30 minutes we round. So we do feed our volunteers and we feel that's important. We always make sure there's going to be breakfast, there's going to be coffee and we're going to have lunch. So while we're having lunch and it's a great way to kind of meet everybody and, you know, we've made such great friends and we, you know, just like you're in the hospital, we have team rounds and you've got the doctor and everybody has, you know, a few minutes to talk about their patient and kind of brainstorm on how we can continue to help them in any community resources. So we have a pretty large multidisciplinary team. So we have the physician, like I mentioned, the, some specialist physicians like our amputee physician, PTOT speech, and pharmacist. We've also at times have social workers, neuropsychologists, chaplain, nursing, and anybody else. We've even had a recreational therapist come one time, a music therapist, anybody that was interested or is interested in, in volunteering that's related, we try to incorporate them as well. So we also started a spasticity clinic. So we have some PMNR physicians that we receive neurotoxins, we receive them for free, and we have the physician that comes in and provides spasticity management and injections for people with increased spasticity, which actually this is, I received a lot of education and training working alongside the physician doing that. So I've learned a lot as a speech therapist, especially working with all of these other disciplines. Well, what an excellent collaborative effort. And you're learning a lot along the way, you're having fun, and you're helping a lot of people. Let's talk about that a little bit because you see a very diverse group of patients from a lot of different backgrounds because some of these people had coverage and then the coverage ran out. So can you just tell us a little bit about the people you yeah, see? So you, you know, we see anybody like, you know, extreme poverty, undocumented people that, you know, are not, they're not from here. And then we see, you know, I mean, one of them was an attorney who worked for himself, but never got around to get his own insurance and had a massive right hemisphere stroke. And, you know, this was all that he had. So, and as I mentioned, he didn't live in Harris County. So his options were very limited. And as we know, therapy is very costly. So we can see a huge range of people, even a gentleman that was coming here to visit his daughter that was in medical school and he was coming from Taiwan. And, you know, he had this stroke when he was on vacation here. So what we see, and those are just brain injuries. So we also see spinal cord injury and at time as a speech language pathologist, you know, if they're swallowing problems and I was seeing them as well, but we have a spinal cord injury patients and, you know, the amputee patients that we have as well. And we do provide the amputee at no charge as well. We collaborate with the company Dr. Melton does and free of charge. Everything that we do is, is free of charge for our patients. 
And this is a therapy clinic. So also the medical equipment division that we also provide wheelchairs, it's anybody with a physical disability. Wow. How incredible. What a gift to the people who you serve. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the medical equipment. So you didn't start as a medical equipment provider, nonprofit providing medical equipment, but that evolved. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we were referring to Project Union. We talked about that small little resident group. And in 2014, they started dissolving and we ended up taking over. So that was when RSVP started the medical equipment division, or you can say RSVP med. And we started off, they were in a tiny storage unit facility, and then we eventually moved to a warehouse. So we provide DME or durable medical equipment, such as power wheelchairs, standard wheelchairs, standing frames, walkers, bathroom equipment, and more. And so at that time, I was a board member. And I remember going through the process of, we had a board member that joined from Project Union and kind of explaining how they ran things. And at first I was a little like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Like, but then, you know, as I started thinking, I was like, wait, I do. My sister has this, you know, I can participate in that. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, I'm not just saying us in speech therapy, but, you know, we can be a little intimidated by things that are, oh, that's not speech related, you know, but realizing that once we were able to provide this equipment to people, wait, if they were in a better chair, Oh, if they were in a better position, oh, now their swallowing has improved. Now their voice is better. Now they are not as fatigued. So, you know, I started, I just feel like I learned so much more when I saw what happens when they don't have it at all. And then once they do are given the opportunity. So yeah, we were then growing, you know, that was what in, you know, 2014, 2015, we were slowly growing. People were volunteering. We had pretty consistent people and everything was was running smoothly and just making a few adjustments. And then we had, then you start as any nonprofit will at some point, some disruption. And you'll have to tell us about that disruption. Just one point of clarification. You had the four patients a day, but for the medical equipment, you distributed that in a different type of a clinic? We did. So Project Union had it, you know, I think we changed it or we modified it. So the first Saturday was therapy clinic. And then the second, we called it second Saturday. So it kind of stuck where everybody's like, oh, are you going to second Saturday? So second Saturday was when we distributed all of the medical equipment in that small, tiny storage shed. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. So as you were evolving, moving along, growing, you had a disruption and that was someone by the name of Harvey. That's right. right. Yes. 2017 Hurricane Harvey hit as everyone could probably remember. So I was so fortunate. So my family and I, the area that we were in did not flood at all. I mean, we were just, we were shocked that we were not flooding. So, but all over Houston, I mean, we were just hearing of friends that were having to escape their homes, like however they could. I remember this one old colleague of mine, she had twins and she had to be rescued with her twins by a helicopter from her house. I mean, it was just shocking. And it was just like story after story, another 
friend of mine, you know, she had to be rescued by a friend's kayak and, you know, people having to leave behind their cats and pets. And I just couldn't imagine. And here I am, you know, just sitting here. I mean, we were just building up this anxiety, like what's happening. And so almost immediately people were starting to contact us and telling us that people were escaped or yes, people were escaping their homes and being taken to all these shelters, but they were leaving behind their wheelchairs. You can't put a wheelchair on a kayak. They're walkers, you know? And so they were then, at least they were safe, but then they were not mobile. So then we, and talking to the city of Houston, we were with other organizations and we said, what can we do? So we were able to go to our warehouse. It wasn't flooded either. I had a big SUV, some of my other friends, people from the organizations. So we just went and grabbed whoever we could. I mean, I met so many people during Hurricane Harvey and still to this day, like talk to them. And we were like, let's get whatever we can. So we brought it over to a central location and people from all over were coming and donating what they could and then picking up things what they could. You know, somebody might call in, hey, I know the shelter doesn't have anything. Can we pick up some walkers? Yes. So we were just, you know, making things work. And so then as soon as the city was safer to travel around, RSVP held the largest distribution ever managed. So we had more than 100 volunteers students, physicians, therapists, and we were receiving more than 150 pieces of donated medical equipment. And we even received, I remember somebody from a truck came, oh gosh, I'm blanking on her name, something Joni. And she came with all these wheelchairs and, you know, she drove, I don't know how many miles from another state. So we received so much media coverage because like even our mayor, Sylvester Turner came and everybody started then knowing who we were. So remember, we were still kind of small, like this was just a part of what we were doing for RSVP. And so our monthly equipment distribution grew significantly. And so we had to modify kind of how we did it and manage. So even though I wasn't a PT or OT, I think because I stepped into that role during Hurricane Harvey, I then came in and I was familiar with my sister's equipment. I then, as a speech language pathologist, kind of took over and kind of managed that for a few years. So, but, you know, I think it's important as you're growing and if I was able to, and to kind of be able to pivot and be flexible with changes needed. I just love how you have met so many challenges along the way and just, you know, whatever the job needs to be done, you do it. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, with nonprofit, you have a vision, but you just never know where it's going to go. And it's going to go most likely in a beautiful path, you know, but there's just a lot of things that happen and you, you take those opportunities when you can. So then things kind of settled down and you were in a rhythm and then the pandemic yeah. was another disruption. That's so right. How did, how did you pivot then? So yes, our next disruption was COVID as most of the listeners also experienced some sort of change at work in how you do things. Our medical, you know, I think we are fortunate that, you know, we have a medical director. So, you know, this was his role. Like he was able to say, no, we can't do that. Like, no, my advice is this. And of course the whole board had to agree. So I remember in particular, I was like, can we do a drive-through? Let's just do a drive-through. Like, let's give equipment out. And, you know, he was very good at being like, well, we need to have this in place and you need to make sure you're safe on this. And I'm like, okay, you're right. So we did a, a drive-through. Those We did those a few times as safe as we could. People outside 
And then because of the pandemic, well, I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, but we, our landlord gave us notice that he was selling the warehouse that we had all of our items in. And we're still early on in the pandemic. And we moved all of our equipment into a tiny storage facility. So that was a huge challenge. You know, we had to find volunteers to throw things away, to go through things that have been there for a few years, to clean them and to organize. And it took several weeks for us to move out of a warehouse. And we decided then, let's just keep things that are very unique, complex, you know, the specific tilt and space wheelchairs, power wheelchairs, let's keep those. And anything that's small, we found, we reached out to all of those organizations that I mentioned early on and gave back to them and they were able to take it and use it and and distribute it as needed. So we then decided, well, what do we do? How do we still serve our mission and help people that do need, you know, briefs and wipes and bathroom equipment. So we realized, well, we have this money. We don't use a lot of our money. Let's go ahead and just ship it directly to them from Amazon. So this is safe. We're not having to bring in volunteers. And we've been doing it for about almost two years now where we are sending it directly to the patient. So with the therapy, just like everybody else, you know, we had a shutdown, our city shut down for a few months. And then we had to follow the rules of, I believe, like a skilled nursing facility, depending on the licensing. So they were a little bit more stricter in when we could start seeing patients again. And our volunteers, they had to meet the same criteria, like they had to be fully vaccinated and so forth and wear appropriate PPE in order to get back into treating. So we started treating again in, we started smaller clinics in the summer of 2021 again. So it was a long pause in that. In the meantime, as for speech therapy, we were bringing in patients here at my clinic and seeing them one at a time once I was open. And so that worked out for a while and we're still actually doing that. So how many patients do you see at your clinic and is it still twice a month or do you see them more frequently? So on our end for at my clinic, we'll see them as needed. We still will see them. Usually we provide three to four sessions, therapy sessions after depending on their priority. So for us, since they're not coming into a Saturday clinic, we have more flexibility. So we do about three to four sessions and we'll see one at a time. So depending on our availability. So I'm able to, you know, when I see open spots and we can schedule an RSVP patient for speech therapy needs. And we did try teletherapy a little bit, but, you know, one of the big challenges with teletherapy is many of the families that we serve did not have the technology or did not have reliable internet access. So it was very difficult. So at times, if it was, we wanted to try teletherapy, it ended up having to be a phone call and it was more of answering questions and trying to provide uh, training and education by phone. Hmm. So easy to forget that not everyone has those resources. That's right. Yeah. You forget, especially, I think we all saw that during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how have you managed growth as a nonprofit? Well, right before COVID, we were experiencing a significant growth. We were pretty overwhelmed with the equipment division, which was great. I mean, but at times we had over 50 people coming in, in a short 
time span in the mornings. It was between 9 a.m. to 12. We didn't have an appointment-based system because we were still using like what Project Union did, which was anybody can come. It's open to the community. And we wanted to continue that and not limit any people into getting what they needed. And so, you know, it started becoming an issue when we were physically just running out of space. We couldn't hold that many people inside our warehouse and in the air conditioning waiting area. So people were having to wait outside. We had to buy, you know, a tent. People were getting dehydrated. We had to send volunteers over to get water. So it was just, you know, something that we had to try to figure out and see what happened. So Luckily, we had a wonderful, amazing group of students from the Texas Women's University, and they provided a, they had to do a service project every year. So they would pick a nonprofit. And so they chose us and I was president at the time. So I was able to do all those initial meetings with their professors and we decided to come up with a system to improve this. And so, and that's something else I encourage, you know, when you not just collaborating with other nonprofits, but other universities that are related to the field. So even though they were related to the speech therapy or even all the therapies, they really helped us with their project. So they worked with us for two different projects. So in this one, we created a handbook for volunteers. We created a better system on managing volunteers when they're coming to the warehouse. And we started an appointment-based system and then COVID happened. So we weren't able to fully implement all of that. And then we moved out of the warehouse. So, but it was amazing to work with such enthusiastic students because they really were motivated. And during the pandemic, they also helped us with our YouTube videos, which had no idea how to even do a YouTube video. And they certainly did. They did captions. They even translated it. And we now have it on our website. So that was a lot of fun to work with them during COVID. Oh, that's great to hear. Tell us a little bit about those YouTube videos. Some of them were related to the medical equipment. Yeah. So actually they were, we realized like we're, you know, we're giving them these Amazon packages. Like, here you go. Here's your free shower chair. And then it's like, wait, do they know how to put it together? Is it easy for them? You know, even though they may not have an internet, like with an iPad or computer, you know, most of them do have internet on their phone or some sort of service. And so we decided to put instructional videos. So we have them in Spanish and English for the basic things that we can send them. So how to put a walker together, how to the shower chair, I think one of the simple transport wheelchairs and how to do simple adjustments to a wheelchair. So it was great. And this was all of their idea. So it was amazing. It's one of my favorite projects that we've done. I hope we can do more in the future. Well, that's wonderful. All right. Well, let's talk about financially how you have survived all of these disruptions and continue to thrive and grow. You have several different financial resources. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So with the 501c3, and this is why it's important to obtain that as a nonprofit, we can re- you can then receive monetary and in-kind donations that are tax deductible. So this is an incentive for people to donate to you. After receiving that donation, you then have to create a tax deductible receipt. So it has to include certain things, what type of donation. It could be an individual donation, which is a, you know, a person, if I want to donate money to the Red Cross, you know, that's just an individual donation. There's also corporate donations. So from a company that might donate money or they're matching, 
one of their employees, or there's also an in-kind donation, and this is not money. So for us, we do receive a lot of in-kind donations because we receive therapy and durable medical supplies. And so for every donation that comes in, we have to create that receipt, just like when you go to Goodwill and you get a receipt. So my first officer position was becoming treasurer. So I had to learn all of this and I knew nothing. So most of us board members were in a nonprofit. This was our first time and first experience with a nonprofit. So we had to get a lot of advice. United Way has amazing resources. And I look to make sure that there's a United Way probably near you or online, there's resources and they have training classes that are related to nonprofits or even, you know, starting a small business. So, I mean, they had everything from Excel classes if you wanted to learn computer software. And I took one on QuickBooks because I realized I had to start using QuickBooks. So we were also invited to community meetings with other nonprofits. So we started collaborating, meeting with people and local universities so that we kind of understood what are some other things we can use on the the administrative side of the nonprofit. And so one of them was, it's called techsoup.org and we still use it. So it's a simple application and we get reduced programs and software on our computers. And I think you can also get technology computers at a reduced rate. So I highly recommend that for anybody that is in a nonprofit because sometimes it could be free. So our QuickBooks is at a very reduced rate. And then because working now that we have our accountant, you know, she helps us keep with our books. So we do have to create monthly reconciliation reports as a nonprofit. We do quarterly reports and the quarterly reports are what I was presenting to the board during our meetings. And then you have to create your first annual budget. So the accountant kind of helped me handle all that. And because at first I was doing it with a person that was for free and we both didn't know what we were doing. So, so highly, yes, hire an, an accountant that knows what they're doing. But as far as funding, and I was talking about the individual contribution. So for us, you know, it was pretty easy. The doctors, the therapists, you know, were seeing what we were doing or they would come in and volunteer. And so, you know, they were willing to donate, you know, $20, $100, you know, at the end of the year after volunteering. And then at the end of the year, we'd always reach out to potential donors, you know, through cards, postcards, and we would receive quite a bit from that. And then the corporate Some of the companies that we work with in the hospitals, you know, I'm thinking of some DME groups, the durable medical equipment, they would give us a donation yearly as well. So those are some of the corporates. We also, you know, talking about students, they also would fundraise, they would create fundraisers. And so we've been the recipient of several student fundraisers where, you know, they raise quite a bit of money and they all pitch in and, you know, they know that. This is what they're going to do also working with this population. So we were able to get some great fundraisers, some great amount of money donations from them. Before COVID, we haven't had a large fundraising event since COVID, but one of our largest fundraising events was, believe it or not, it was a race car driving event. (laughs) So yes, we're working with brain injury. Everyone's wearing helmets, but we have this racetrack here called MSR Houston. And it's just amateur racers. This is their hobby. And they have their cars that they buy and make it all fast. 
And there's all these different races. And so we created this event with the CEO at the time of Mentis, the one that was donating the gym space. And we had a huge success. We did it two years in a row. And so with that big fundraiser, we were able to receive a lot of a lot of money. And do you outsource the fundraising, organizing the fundraising events, as well as like the postcards, or is that all done by volunteers within that's, the organization? So that's all done by volunteers. You can, and we've looked into it. You know, that's, I think that's always going to be a challenge with any type of nonprofit. It took a lot of time to do that very large fundraiser. So it was us that were already volunteering our time, that were already on the board, dedicating time for a fundraising event that took a long time. You know, the other thing I, I did fail to mention was, you know, there's grants, there's scholarships that are out there for nonprofits. For Texas, we had, there's a Texas Speech and Hearing Association has this annual community service endowment fund. And this allowed us to purchase therapy materials early on in with our organization. So I had to, you know, it was a pretty simple application, what we were going to use the money for, who the population was. And all I needed was simple communication books. You know, I had so many Spanish speaking patients that just needed, you know, had severe expressive aphasia and just needed a way to communicate. So there are these small, simple communication binders are like this big. And, you know, they have all the basic things for a simple communication. So we did, we were able to get, get several books of those with the money that we were able to get from that endowment fund. Well, that's great. All right. So individual contributions, corporate contributions, some other nonprofit and foundations can contribute. And then fundraising events, grants, and scholarships. So you use a lot of different financial resources. And that's great to hear that you actually have the funds to purchase the medical equipment and send to people's homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's a blessing in disguise, right? So we're not paying rent for this warehouse anymore. So that allowed us to, you know, shift our budget a little bit and create and have more for equipment. I have a question about the in-kind donations. So if a therapist donates their time, is that considered an in-kind donation? So you can track those hours as well. Some people are coming in from corporations that need that. And so there are times that we might have to fill out paperwork for them or give them a letter. I think there's also high schoolers that require certain volunteer hours. And so we don't necessarily have one that we provide, but we're always happy to fill them out and keep track. of. So we do keep track of the volunteers. Okay. So then that volunteer could take in that donation. They could report that on their taxes as an in-kind donation. They can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, you have used a wide variety of resources and that's great. Thank you for telling us about all of them. So you decided at the very beginning that you would not be able to pay any volunteers who are actual therapists and this keeps costs low, but it probably presents some challenges as well. Can you talk about that? Yes. So at the very beginning, and I can tell you, we've had many meetings where we're like, maybe we should pay them because we don't have enough volunteers for, you know, this coming up clinic. So it does keep our overhead low, but, and we have to recruit very specialized professionals. So 
Even in our field for speech therapy, you know, we have to make sure that the clinician that's volunteering has experience. So that has experience with dysphagia and cognitive linguistic deficits with brain injury. And so when we're recruiting, we still have to follow all the state guidelines, just like for as an employer, we need to make sure they have an active license and we need to make sure that if it is a clinical fellow, that their supervisor is coming along with them as well, if they're going to provide treatment. And then if students also, they have to come with their clinical supervisor. But if not, you know, they can still come in and observe and assist with other non-direct therapy for patients with, you know, for us, we decided, you know, it's hard for me to be there every Saturday. So we had to kind of shift things more with speech therapy and trying to recruit. So that's where we changed it and said, oh, well, you know, we're still helping them and then we're bringing them into our clinic. So we've done that with other clinics too, where if we can't find a specialist, you know, we'll reach out to them like, hey, we have this person. Can they come to your outpatient clinic and can they be seen? And so that's another way that we're able to do you know, Saturdays are hard. I mean, I don't blame them. I mean, now that my kids are, you know, I told you I had my child back in 2011. Well, now she's, you know, always busy on Saturdays. You know, it was actually easier when she was a toddler because she wasn't having soccer meets and softball practices and games. So Saturdays are very hard for me now. So it is difficult to recruit on a weekend, but, you know, we collaborate with so many professionals and that's how we recruit. We go and provide, you know, lunch or breakfast and talk about and educate people about RSVP. And that's just one of the most important things is just making sure we're reaching out to our community. And I hope, you know, now with the pandemic, you know, with things changing now that we can do a little bit more of that. We've also had even post-acute hospitals donate a hospital bed. So a facility that might have a low census, we were able to find the right patient and get them to have, you know, two more weeks of intense PTOT and speech. So that was just some things that we were just trying to think outside of the box. And, you know, if we can help that one person to get more therapy, then we'll do whatever it takes. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, we're coming up on our time, but I wanted to ask you, I know we want to get some case studies. Hopefully we'll have some time, but can you tell us how SLP services in general can be delivered through a nonprofit such as RSVP? We've talked about that a little bit, but I know there are different ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're providing it at, you know, first we were at a medical clinic, you know, so we were, you know, this is mainly physician wasn't necessarily a rehab clinic, but we were able to come in and provide some speech therapy. The other one was where we were providing therapy in homes, but it was different than home health. So we were very unique in our approach where, you know, we wanted to see as many patients as we could, but we wanted to see them together as a group. And so how I said, we had the physician, the nurse, PTOT and speech. And so this is one of my favorite experiences. So as a Spanish speaking bilingual SLP, usually I was coming in first with the home patient and kind of getting some background information, establishing rapport with the family and getting all of the medical information that the doctor needed. And during that time, we also then, I was trying to establish to see, you know, can the patient give us a reliable yes, no, is the patient able to answer some questions? Is the patient verbal? Are they comprehending? And all this 
literally in just 10 minutes, the fastest assessment I've ever done in my life and getting as much information as I can. I did, I was, you know, just, it was different than anything I've ever had to do. Then PT and OT are coming in together and assessing them physically. So we were working as a team 100%, you know, all hands on on the patient. And we got so much more information than, you know, the way we would normally do it. Oh, you know, physician first, then PT, then OT, then speech. I mean, that's five hours and we did it within like 45 minutes. So that's what we were doing in the type of services that we were providing in our nonprofit. You know, we've also with the donated gym, you know, that was more what you would traditionally see in an outpatient facility. And so we were doing our therapy there, but we also had the ability to do co-treat. So when possible. And if we needed to, co-treats were happening or co-evaluations were still happening in that outpatient. And then here they're coming in private practice. So we're seeing them here. And then of course, teletherapy sessions. But a lot of our focus is education and training, as I mentioned before. And so, you know, early on, just trying to create good home programs and just finding resources for us. You know, we're in Texas, so finding education in Spanish and trying to, you know, find the best way to get that information to them because it's just so overwhelming. They're getting so much information. So I use education resources from the Brain Injury Association of America and National Aphasia Association are some examples. Aphasia.org did used to not have education in Spanish. And I remember I had to do a little interview with them about a person with aphasia that was at our clinic. And so after I said that they didn't have any Spanish education online, they quickly did like a year later. So they oh, reached out great. and they were like, oh, you're right. We will. We're working on it. So I went online recently and, and that, yes, they still have it there. So it's great. And we, you know, use, try to find free or low cost apps. You know, Lingraphica has free, a lot of free apps that we show our patients and then, you know, as I mentioned before, use some training videos. So I think those are a great way. I hope that maybe we can do some training videos for speech therapy that we can provide in our nonprofit. That would be excellent. All right. Well, I know you were coming up on time, but you did prepare some case studies. So if you wouldn't mind, let's talk about one of those and then we'll close. Okay. I think I'm going to choose my patient A. He was one of my home patients, one of the first home patients that we saw. And he was working with his father here in Houston. They were undocumented. So they were from another country. They were such hard workers. I mean, they just were working for their beautiful family in their country and he got injured on the job. So he was minimally responsive. We came in, he had a Jackson metal trach. I think it was stainless steel trach. I had never seen one before. I'm at tears. So, you know, usually it was not that, it was a Shiley one. So he was nonverbal, NPO, completely dependent for everything. And we did another home visit after that just to get him the right wheelchair and show the dad how to transfer him. So because the dad had to work, they had an uncle and then neighbors that were helping take care of him because he needed 24-hour care. So we also brought in a Hoyer lift to train them to transfer him to his car because he couldn't even go see a physician if he needed to. Anytime that something was happening, they had to call the ambulance because they couldn't transfer him. So they started bringing him to the clinic and then 
all of a sudden, you know, just sitting, like I mentioned before, just sitting up in a wheelchair was improving his trunk support. He started becoming more alert. He started, you know, his breath support was better. So he eventually was decannulated. We were also working we changed the trach and we were working on PMV use and then eventually decannulated. He started eating with us. We started, you know, we got him a modified barium swallow study. He started talking. He started walking. He started moving his arm and then he started walking. And I, I have a picture of him where he came up and gave me and this other volunteer. She was also an SLP and gave us a hug and said, Gracias. You know, it's just like, oh my gosh, like, and so, you know, the goal for him was to go home, you know, to be with family. And he's just one of many that we've been able to work as a team together and take him home, go back home, you know, or be where he needs to be. So be more independent. And that's one of my favorite stories that I'll always remember. Oh, that is a beautiful story. And you are doing And RSVP is doing so much good for so many people. And I really, really appreciate you sharing it with us tonight, especially all the information about how to start a nonprofit. I know we have some listeners out there who are interested in that, and this will be a good start for them. Now, I know at the time that you started RSVP, there wasn't anything like this in Texas. Since then, over you know 10 years have passed. Is there anything like that in Texas, or do you know of any other similar organizations in other states? There's other, not with therapy, specifically with brain injury that I know of right now, but we did expand. So we have an RSVP in Colorado. So the physician that was with us for spinal cord injury patients, him and his wife continued that in Colorado when he moved there. So we have that. We also have an RSVP in Georgia and plans for other places too. So, and these are all volunteers that we've had here. So that's in the works of kind of expanding in other states. And yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So if we had someone listening who was interested in starting an RSVP in their state, how would it be best to contact you? So you can contact me by my email. So at work, it's stilton at wisdomspeechtherapy.com. You can also go on rsvptexas.org. And if you ask for me, if you get the general email or the the link to communicate, they can get sent to me. So, but rsvptexas.org is our nonprofit. Excellent. And I know you also provided some resources on the handout that you provided to speechtherapypd.com, which will be attached to this course for anyone listening in the future. And I know you brought a great quote today, and I would love it if you could share that. So take it away. So So I was like, okay, how do I end? I wanted to find a good quote that kind of talks about what we just talked about and why we do what we do and why you're interested in a nonprofit. So this is from Leo Buscaglia. Too often we underestimate the power of touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. So I'm reminded as a volunteer that even something that we think is so small or something that everyone should know regarding speech therapy may not be known by someone that does not have any access to care. So at times as we, as a volunteer SLP, 
will be the only speech therapy that that person might receive. And doing it with care and love can truly make an impact in that person and family member's life. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being with us tonight. It was really great to have you. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, if anybody has any questions, feel free to email me. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us and keep up the good work. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.